Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Well, Merry Christmas. You realize we're only 12 days away from Christmas, so I can say that, right? The 12 days of Christmas. How many of you guys are ready for Christmas? Raise your hands. Not ready for Christmas? Okay, about the same number as last week. You guys need to step it up a little bit. I want to welcome all of you who are here in the room, everybody watching online as well. We're so glad that you've joined us. And I want to begin with this. One of the challenging things about what we celebrate around Christmas time is, in fact, the Christmas story, the story that's related to the birth of Jesus. Why? Well, because so much of it is just downright amazing and miraculous. And a lot of people, they struggle with miracles. They struggle with the supernatural. Norm MacDonald, the comedian who used to do the weekend update sketches on Saturday Night Live, shortly before he passed away, just a few months ago, he posted this on Twitter. He said, smart man says nothing is a miracle. I say everything is. Isn't that good? Smart man says nothing is a miracle. I say everything is. And there's so much about the Christmas story that is so unbelievable that, frankly, a lot of people just don't believe it. And I get that. You know, maybe the thought is, hey, they had to come up with some myth about the birth of Jesus to give them street cred later on, right? And maybe that's where all this miracle birth stuff came from. But here's the deal. I would say that if an individual can predict their own death and then their own resurrection, I'm not all that concerned about how they got into the world in the first place, right? Because Christianity doesn't hinge on the story of the birth of Jesus. It really hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. And as unbelievable as the birth narrative of Jesus is, I'm telling you, when you get the whole backstory, it really makes sense of the flow of human history. And so today, I'm going to give you a little history lesson. How many of you love history? Would you raise your hand? Okay, at least uh, 10 people will enjoy this message today. Excellent. Now, I'm telling you, for all of us, It should help us get a whole new perspective on the Christmas story. Because what if I told you that the Christmas story did not begin with a couple who are trying to figure out how in the world they got pregnant? The Christmas story actually began with a couple who were worried they'd never get pregnant. The Christmas story did not begin with a couple who were trying to figure out where are we going to have this baby. The Christmas story began with a couple who were pretty confident we're never going to have a baby. See, the backstory of Christmas began when God made a promise in the book of Genesis. And not just any promise, an unbelievable, impossible, incoherent promise. Because the person who received it, it made no sense whatsoever in his cultural context. I'm telling you, it was such an unbelievable, incoherent promise that it was equally impossible for it to ever come to pass. And yet, this promise sets the stage for all the events of Christmas. In fact, I would say that this promise in Genesis is actually what makes the birth of Jesus' story so believable. This promise was given 2,000 years before Jesus was even born. In fact, 2090 B.C. is the best estimate. It's found in the book of Genesis. And this document that we have called Genesis, it's in our Bibles today. It's actually a remarkable document. It tells the story of how the Jewish nation began. 
And honest scholars have proven time and time again that this is a very accurate, reliable historical document. And in this ancient Jewish document we call Genesis, God makes a promise to a man named Abram, who eventually would become Abraham. So here's how Christmas began, people. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. So he basically tells him, I want you to leave everything that you know. Now, that was very, very dangerous back then because safety and security in the ancient world had everything to do with your clan, your tribe, your family, your relatives. So God is asking Abram to do something extraordinarily dangerous. I want you to leave everything you know, everything that you've been around, all the people you know. I want you to leave the security of your home, and I'll tell you when you get to where I want you to go. And then the promises begin. God says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation. Now, Abram's about 75 years old at this point, and he has no children. So I'm guessing he's thinking to himself, great nation? Yeah, I don't know about that. How about we start with great-grandfather? I. I don't know that I'm going to be around to see that I become a great nation. How about the promises continue? And I will bless you. I will make your name great. To which he thought, well, if I leave here, how am I going to have a great name be famous? I mean, everybody's going to forget who I am here. They won't know who I am, where I'm going. And the promises continue. And you will be a blessing. Now, you got to understand, within the cultural context of the ancient times, this made no sense. See, back then, people groups weren't really involved in blessing other people groups. They didn't bless anybody outside their own clan, their own tribe, their own family. And yet God says, you're going to be a blessing. And he goes on to say, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. In other words, Abram, I'm going to be with your children and your children's children and their children's children's children, I'm going to be with you throughout this entire story until it's completed, and nothing is going to stop it. And then God gets to the absolutely, completely unbelievable part of the promise. Are you ready for this? He says, and all peoples, all peoples, all peoples. In other words, every people group, Every tribe, every nation, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That is, every person on earth will ultimately be impacted by your life, Abram. Every single human being who lives on this planet will somehow know who you are and be touched indirectly through what I'm about to do through you. Whoa. Again, in that culture, people groups didn't bless other people groups. Nations didn't bless other nations. Nations conquered each other, enslaved each other, plundered each other. Nations didn't bless other nations. So this made absolutely no sense. And yet Genesis tells us that God gave this promise to Abraham, and Abraham chose to believe God. He basically said to God, I have no idea how this can possibly work. I don't have any kids. I'm not going to be around to see this great nation thing. But because you've given me this promise, I choose to believe this absolutely unbelievable, impossible to fulfill promise. Now, if you know the story, you know that Abraham and Sarah eventually have a son, right? His name is Isaac. And then Isaac has a son. In fact, we'll put the family tree up here for you. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. 
Okay, Isaac actually has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Now, this is interesting because Esau is the older son. His name should be up here, except Jacob was sneaky. There, and there is so much family dysfunction and chaos going on here in the book of Genesis. You should really read this book sometime. Let me tell you, it will make you feel better about yourself, your children, your children's children, your parents and how they treated you, even your adolescence and all the stuff you did back then. You see, Jacob, he stole the birthright from Esau, so he would get the blessings of the older brother. Otherwise, you know what? We would see the name Esau up here, not Jacob. Well, it gets even crazier. So Jacob has 12 sons, but 10 of them don't like their other brother, Joseph. So what do they do? They throw him in a well, and they're trying to figure out what to do with him. And they're going, okay, do we, do we kill him or do we sell him? Hmm. Now, you think you have some sibling issues going on in your family? Anybody wrestling with that question right now? Do we kill him or do we sell him? I'm waiting for a hand somewhere, an honest hand. Okay. Doesn't that, what? Well, they figure, well, we don't profit if we kill him, so let's sell him. So they sell off Joseph. He ends up in Egypt. Eventually, the whole family migrates to Egypt, where they do, in fact, become, like God promised, a nation. But they're a nation of slaves. I mean, for several hundred years, Abraham's descendants, who were going to bless the whole world, remember, they're living as slaves in Egypt. They're not exactly feeling very blessed in that situation. And they're not really in a position to bless anybody else. They're a nation of slaves, and they're thinking, okay, God promised our father Abraham that we would be a great nation, and yeah, here we are. And God promised that somehow the whole world's going to be blessed through us. How in the world is any of that possibly going to take place? Well, you know the story. You know, eventually God sends a deliverer, Moses. He stands up to Pharaoh, delivers his people, right? And, and knowing the story of Moses, you know that by the time Moses was finished with Pharaoh and the Egyptians, nobody in Egypt was exactly feeling very blessed by the descendants of Abraham. And then they take off, they make their way across the Red Sea into the promised land, the land of Canaan, and the inhabitants who are living there in Canaan, do you think they're feeling very blessed by the presence now of the descendants of Abraham coming in there? Now, if you read your Old Testament, you know that there is so much violence, there is so much bloodshed that you may be tempted to think, how in the world can all this be a part of the story of God? Well, the short answer is this. What offends us today was normal to them back then. And one of the reasons we're so offended by all that violence is this. We are now on the other side of Christmas. And you got to understand, Christmas changed everything. Christmas changed the world. I mean, we view the world entirely different because of Christmas. But all that was part of the journey toward the Christmas story. So about a 1,000 years go by since God made this promise to Abram. And Abraham becomes a family. The family then becomes a nation. The nation then becomes a kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And under King David, who was the warrior king, he made peace treaties with all the nations, and he pretty much took it upon himself to settle any disputes. And suddenly, for the first time, it looked like the nation of Israel, Abraham's descendants, might be able to do something special in this world. David is followed by his son, Solomon. Solomon was extraordinarily wise. He was actually known as the builder king. And under his reign, the kingdom expanded to such a degree that people would come from all over the world to see the wonders of Solomon's construction projects, to listen to his wisdom. 
And for the first time, it looked like the nation of Israel would finally be able to be a blessing to the whole world. I mean, they were wealthy, they were influential, but instead of blessing the world, Solomon chose to marry the daughters of all the kings and queens, all the rulers of the foreign nations. And not just that, he not only married their daughters, you know what he did? He chose to worship their gods. Well, in response to that, God kept a promise, but it wasn't his promise to Abraham. God kept his promise to Solomon because he had already warned Solomon, but if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land and reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. It says, I will make it an object of ridicule among all peoples. And sure enough, after Solomon died, the kingdom was divided. Opportunity lost. And as a result of the kingdom of Israel splitting, they had a divided economy, they had a divided military, and all of a sudden, there was 300 years of absolute chaos. And then after 300 years, the northern kingdom, which was known as Israel, was invaded by Assyria, who basically carted off all the people, spread them across the Assyrian Empire, and then they imported their own people into Israel. So essentially, the northern kingdom was lost. It was gone forever. It no longer existed. And then the southern kingdom, which was known as Judah, they're in trouble as well, right? They're weakened militarily. They're weakened economically. And they're bracing themselves for invasion. And at this point, God sends a prophet, Isaiah, to speak to the people. And Isaiah, he wrote down his prophecy for us. And fortunately, God, by his sovereignty, has preserved it in our English Bibles. But I want you to try to imagine this right now. There's absolute chaos going on. They're bracing themselves to be invaded. And this is what God says through the prophet Isaiah. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. What? I'm going to do something through you, Israel, so that all the non-Jewish people, all the Gentiles will look in your direction. You're going to be a light to the world. And they're thinking, that's a joke. We're not going to be a light to anybody. We can't even light up our own lives, let alone light up the world. I mean, nobody's attracted to this part of the world. But Isaiah continues, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Salvation? Are you kidding me? We can't even save ourselves. How are we going to save any other nation? And soon after this prophecy, sure enough, the Assyrians, they come in, they invade the southern kingdom of Judah, and it becomes a vassal state to the Assyrian Empire. But just like that. And then another 300 years go by, and you may know the story the Babylonians come in under Nebuchadnezzar. And at this point in time, they wipe out the city. And the Solomon's temple, Solomon's temple that he created, remember that temple that God said would be completely wiped out, would be destroyed? It was. And all the royalty, all the best and brightest of people, they were shipped out of there. And suddenly, the economy is in complete shambles. The military is devastated. And then... <laughs> right in the midst of that chaos. Another 300 years goes by, and God sends another prophet, Malachi, to speak even more impossible words. And, and I'm, I've got to believe that at this point in time, they're going, okay, come on. When they hear these prophecies, they're like, okay, you're just trying to encourage us now. That's all you're doing. It's like when your son or daughter fails at something, and you're trying to think of any way you can to kind of prop them up. Hey, it's all going to work out. Better luck next time. You can do anything you set your mind to. 
You know, all the things that parents say when in the back of their minds are going, oh, I hope so, right? <sighs> sure hope so. That's, that's got to be what they're thinking. So here's what God said to them through the prophet Malachi. My name will be great among the nations. To which they thought, no, it won't. God, have you seen what's going on here? Your name is being mocked among the nations. Your name is a joke among the nations. No one wants to worship our God. They think our God is pathetic. He can't take care of his own people. We can't feed ourselves. We can't protect ourselves. I mean, let's stop with all these empty promises, all this hype about greatness. Oh, but Malachi wasn't done. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. I mean, essentially what this meant was any place in the world where people are worshiping, there will be a group that recognizes me. Well, the people of Judah couldn't buy that. I mean, how could they? They'd already been overrun by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and guess what? The Greeks were now coming. And as if that wasn't enough to add insult to injury, in 63 BC, Rome sent Pompey the Great to the area of Judah and Galilee, and eventually he breached the walls of Jerusalem, conquered the city, and annexed that whole area into the Republic of Rome. And tradition tells us that when Pompey came into the city, he rode in on a horse, and he actually rode up the southern steps of the Temple Mount, which was absolutely an offense to the Jewish people. And, and once he got there, he slaughtered many of the priests, got off of his horse, and, and he, after he got off his horse, he went right into the most sacred part of the temple. You know what it's called, the Holy of Holies. He just walks, marches right in there. And by the way, in the ancient world, all the other religions, they had some kind of centralized house of worship where they would keep their idols, their representation of God. And so apparently Pompey wanted to see this great God that the Jews fought so valiantly to defend. And he wanted to know, what, what's up with this Jewish God? And so he marches right into the Holy of Holies, tears open the curtain, and the room is empty. Why? Well, the Jews, they have no idol. <laughs> they have no image. There was nothing in the room. And when Pompey saw that there was nothing, he was incredulous. I mean, from a Roman perspective, what a silly, pathetic little religion this is. And so began the Roman occupation of what we now call the Holy Land. So in fact, God was at that point at least partially correct. I mean, Abraham's descendants became a nation, but this unbelievable, impossible promise would end there. I mean, it seemed that the nations of the world, they're not going to be blessed through Abraham's descendants. The Jews are certainly not going to be a light to the Gentiles. And the Jewish God would certainly not be worshipped all throughout the world. Maybe at that point in time, Zeus, maybe Jupiter, but not Yahweh. Because no one is interested in a God who can't care for his own people. And folks, all that backstory is what makes the Christmas story so remarkable. Because when things seemed as hopeless as they possibly could be, when the promise given to Abraham was as far out of reach as it possibly could be, something happened. The Apostle Paul, he put the whole story together this way. He said, when the set time had fully come. Who set that time? God set that time. When the set time 
had fully come. In other words, when God had everything just the way he wanted it to be, an expanding empire, a common Greek and Roman culture, a common language, a highway and port system, unlike anything the world had ever known, connecting all the major population hubs all around the Mediterranean rim, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, where peace had been brought to nations that had been warring for generations and generations, when at last there was a mechanism by which God could get the attention of the entire world and export this good news that would be a blessing to every single nation in the world. When God had everything set, and when everyone had just given up hope in this absolutely incredible, impossible promise given to Abram, when nobody expected it, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was, and you know what? Every single person in the world knows who that virgin was, don't they? I mean, you ever thought about that before? How incredible that is? I mean, this month, all over the world, people will tell this story, and they know who Mary is. How is that? And the virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Well, it had been a long time since anybody in that part of the world felt like God was with them. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. And here's the clincher. Just like God's promise to Abram, for Mary, this must have made no sense whatsoever. His kingdom will never So in fact, God kept his promise to Abraham. He fulfilled everything just as he said. As it turns out, every single nation in the world would be blessed through Abraham. Israel would be a light to the Gentiles because from that part of the world, God sent Jesus. And through his life and teachings, through his death and resurrection, this part of the world has received that light. Think about it. Most of you listening to me right now were Gentiles. And who is it? that we worship a Jewish savior. Christians worship the God of the Jews. We worship the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And one of the reasons the Old Testament scriptures are so precious to us and we combine them with our New Testament documents is because the story and history of Israel was the birthplace, the cocoon from which would come the hope of the world, the light of the world, the savior of the world, whose kingdom will endure forever. And I'm telling you, the thing that makes the Christmas story believable is the fact that no one would have or could have made this up. I mean, it's stretched out over so many years of history, thousands and thousands of years, that the thread was not always evident, and people lost sight of it. But during that entire period of time, God was behind the scenes working, getting the world ready for what he had decided to do the moment sin entered the world. You know, the Christmas story really began 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus. And it continues to unfold now 2,000 years after that first Christmas morning. So who needs Christmas? 
And the answer to that question is simple. God decided the world needed Christmas. And he would work out the story of Christmas on the world stage, involving some of the most significant individuals in human history, many of whom would just become footnotes in the story of the birth of a Jewish carpenter who ultimately changed the world. And through Jesus, the Jews would become a light to the Gentiles. The God of the Jews is now worshiped all throughout the world. And salvation has, in fact, come to every tribe and every nation. We're pushing it out right now. We are passionate about missions in our church because we're bringing this message, this promise to fruition. And through Christmas, we're reminded, folks, that God is active, even when it seems like he's not. That even when God is silent, he's not still. He is actively involved in the affairs of this world. And God doesn't just think in terms of nations. He thinks in terms of individuals. See, God sent his son, Jesus, not simply to be the savior of the world, but to be the savior of you in your world, to be the savior of me in my world. And it's a reminder that no matter how much circumstances may argue to the contrary, God can be trusted. That even when it seems like there's no way possible that he cares, he's listening. And he'll come through for me because our Heavenly Father keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. Why Christmas? Because the world needed Christmas. The world needed hope. The world needed the light of the world. The world needed a Savior. Let's pray together. Lord, as unbelievable as the virgin birth may seem as incoherent, as impossible to fulfill, this promise that you made to Abraham is equally unbelievable. And it could only be played out in the history of the whole world over thousands of years. But every single nuance of that promise that you made some 4,000 years ago has come true. Your name has become great throughout the world. You have become a blessing to all. You have become light to us, the Gentiles. Salvation has come to all nations. Your kingdom will never end. And God, right now, I just pray for anybody listening to me that if they don't know for certain that if they were to die in this moment, that they would go and be with you forever, that they have not placed their faith in the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the fulfillment of your promise, that they would simply recognize that there's nothing they can do. They just have to put their faith in Jesus. So right now, if that's you, just say, Jesus, I believe that you are the fulfillment of this promise. I believe that you are the Savior, that you died for my sins, and that you offer forgiveness and eternal life free of charge. So I'm putting my faith in you. God, for those of us who have that relationship with you, I pray that this story would remind us that if you can be trusted in the larger context of human history over thousands and thousands of years that you were at work, then you can also be trusted in the little details of our lives. So I pray that this Christmas we would have hope, even if things seem hopeless, to know that you're working, that we would have peace, no matter how stressful the circumstances of life may be, and that we would have joy and confidence 
that you're working all things together for good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys go. Have a wonderful Christmas week.